It's April 19th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor again, and this is about the week's acquisition headlines, so let's get right into it. Congress may reject Navy's proposal to end LPD uh, Flight 17 uh, production lines, lawmakers say. So basically what's been going on here was the Navy cut the LPD from the FY 2023 budget and that production line. But then the Marine Corps put the advanced procurement funding for another LPD at the top of its uh, <laughs> unfunded priorities list, the annual wish list to Congress. And so it looks like, you know, the congressmen are talking about whether they're going to put that put that back in here or not. And so, you know, this is I, we blog, I blogged on this a little while ago and Dove Zakheim was calling these like, you know, gold watches where they like will intentionally pull something from the budget that they know Congress will just plus back up so that they can reprioritize. And this seems like a pretty clear case of a gold watch. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's some disagreement there. Um, but what's your take? Yeah, I'm not sure this one is a gold watch. I think, uh, yeah, Dove, Dove was talking about the uh, sur- uh, submarine launched uh, cruise missile and that one for sure doesn't make a bit of sense. But um, but for these, I think, you know, if you go back to 2016 and the Navy's, uh, you know, in their, in their shipbuilding plan, they had already accounted for a number of, of kind of these LH, LHA, LHD type ships. And so what they didn't account for was the procurement of the laws. So I think, I think where the Navy eventually came down is they're kind of like, okay, the Marine Corps clearly wants the laws. So we're on, we're, we'll get on board with, with, with buying, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that procurement, but we don't want to buy, you know, any more of the LPDs. And I could almost see, you know, I tried to, I tried to do the numbers and it was a little bit, a little bit hard here, but they were originally, I think, expected to buy 13 LPDs and zero laws. Now they're expecting to buy, I guess, roughly nine LPDs, although, the LHAs kind of confuse that number a little bit, which is kind of weird. But, but basically, the um, you know L- LPD or LHA, they were going to buy nine of them and then shut down the line. So they short kind of shortcutted that original plan, but they added a bunch of laws. And so I think in their mind, it was probably like a little bit of like a balancing act. And when I actually did the numbers on like you know like typically you have one LPD supporting you know five six five to eight laws uh, because you're it's kind of like the protector ship. It's a lot bigger. It has radar. It has some some protective measures where the laws are kind of helpless in general. Um, and so, if you do that, if you do that math nine against thirty five laws, which is what the Marine Corps wants to buy, it's kind of in the range. It's not completely outside of the norm. So, I actually did have I actually do have some questions. I mean, I think it makes sense to keep the LPDs because I think some of the ones that were bought before uh, the, the class twos, I think some of them are, are a little bit older. So. I think you'd have to look at the lifespan on them and like how that will compare with some of the laws. But, um, uh, but yeah, maybe, you know, maybe you should keep some procurement going with the LPDs and not completely shut it down, but maybe it actually does make sense to phase out a little bit, given that the numbers do kind of seem there to support this operational concept, this expeditionary base kind of concept that the Marine Corps is going for. So I don't know. A couple thoughts there. Uh, I- I think you're pretty right on. I mean, you got to make trade-offs, right, within a budget constraint. So especially if you're going to move towards the light amphibious warship, that's what you've been saying there as the laws. I guess I kind of look at them as kind of like similar, but one is kind of, <laughs> they're just like different parts of that mission and different scales of, of ships. So, well, the Marine Corps here, they, they're saying that the law is about $150 million per hull, 
I don't know exactly. Do you know what a LPD costs? I think, you know, like an LHD or an LHA might be closer over a billion dollars, but I think the LPDs are. The LPDs are too. They are too. The LPDs are like, yeah. I think I, think I saw one number was like 1.8 or something. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Um, I mean, they're, uh, I think they're 40,000 40, to 45,000 tons, um, 200 uh, or uh, 684 feet compared to a law which has one to that one to 8,000 tons. So they're literally. Uh, eight uh, eight times bigger, I guess, or six, six times bigger, six times bigger. So, yeah, yeah. The uh, I don't know if you saw that the uh, the shipbuilding plan that uh, the thirty year shipbuilding plan came out yesterday, um, and they came out with, I guess the basically it was not too much different than last year, but they had some kind of new data and and different alternatives. But in all cases, um, it looked like the total number of ships over the fit up would fall by five essentially. So they're definitely, you know, putting a lot of things and they showed all the, the whole designations that they wanted to uh, retire, which was a bunch of LCSs, by the way, <laughs> some of them Imagine. are four and three years of age. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I think they're all wrapped into the amphibious number. They kind of wrap, they kind of wrap up. They kind of have like a, a total for amphibious, but um yeah, I mean, those LCSs are another one. You know, this article wasn't about that, but it doesn't look very favorable that Congress is going to allow those to retire either. So, I think uh, that'll be that'll be an article in the near future, I'm sure, about how Congress uh, comes up with some NDA provision that says you have to keep you have to keep a certain number of LCSs until you feel you know XX or whatnot. We'll see what what kind of a provision they have that. Uh, you know, uh, that allows, allows that to actually go forward, but expect that. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the air force divide and conquer air force next gen fighter to use unique software system for breaking defense. I think this is kind of what we were expecting out of it, but the air force's future fighter will be built with flight control software completely separated from the software governing its mission system. And that would, you know, basically allow for continuous mission, upgrades and i guess you wouldn't have to recertify the flight software every time you kind of you know push some kind of new code for a sensor or something like that so uh, seems to make a lot of sense i think we've been hearing that that's kind of what the b21 is about as well um but apparently they also were able to do this on the gripen for Saab, so that's now um how they deploy software very agilely as well so yeah I, it makes a lot of sense right yeah, this I mean this is essentially um, you know when you when you hear about sort of open mission systems sort of being applied to uh, programs like uh, GBSD kind of you know digital engineering and all that sort of thing that this is a lot this has a lot to do with it is sort of making it so that you can upgrade certain aspects you can you can upgrade the software for certain aspects of that system even while you you have like a nuke surety piece for cert for certain like flight control aspects of the software. So it's like you can you can sort of figure out like, okay, anything in this in this domain, you know, we're gonna have to go through some lefty certification process. But if anything's outside of that, uh, it's a little bit easier. And that's essentially like remember when we talked about the uh, the U2 and the F16 getting Kubernetes and uh, being able to do some uh, you know software upgrades in the air. That, that's essentially what happened there is they were able to separate out those upgrades from the flight control so there wasn't any impact of flight control it was really just to the mission systems piece so this is definitely the way to go for for the future 
it's it's be, it's being done actually on a number of programs, but it's 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 probably going to be like the foundation for any new any new program going forward is to be able to have that flexibility. So yeah, this makes a lot of sense. You know, one thing it was put to me in one way that was like, you know, you have read write capability for most of the time, but this will segregate so you can only read but not write to the flight software. And but then the problem becomes for if you want to have like an autonomous mode, then you kind of need that integration because the human is kind of, you know, acting as the sensor, right, in some in some respects in that communication stream. So do you then need read write capability for more of the the mission systems with the flight control systems in an autonomy kind of world? I don't know. I think you can. I think you can probably segregate that too. Is you're right. There probably will be some aspects of an autonomous system where you don't want to mess with it too much because you have the sensors, you know, finely calibrated and and it's you know it's doing certain operations with you know bare margin or or maybe there is actually a lot of redundancy there. So there's like a bunch of fail safes that are built in. So you know maybe you, maybe you do update part of the system, but there's other parts of the system that have to be validated against before it executes certain operations. So, I mean, I think you can architect it in different ways, but you could, you could probably also, even in an autonomous system is to say, this is the flight control piece. This is decides whether the aircraft goes left or right. Um, but then have another piece that has algorithms that are, you know, basically processing the, the data that's being, the mission data that's being collected to decide, you know, to validate the target or whatnot. So there's probably are some things you can segregate, but you're right. That starts to get more mixed up, almost like we were talking about the hypersonics where like the engine starts to blend with the aircraft. I think when you do get in in a fully autonomous system, the mission systems and the flight control stuff will probably start to blend a little bit more because they have to, they have to play together and, and talk together. So, yeah. Well, hopefully, I think that probably makes sense, right? So we'll see the development. It looks like one of the things people keep talking about is optionally manned. So, you know, someone's someone's tackling these problems right now. Or the worst, or is that the worst? Uh, is that the worst case? The worst way to do it is optionally manned, where you're like kind of like yeah, sort of straddling both yeah. fences instead of just yeah, like what's yeah. the simplest thing I can do to get something working on one or the other. Yeah, how much complexity and cost and inefficiencies does that does that kind of build in? But yeah. well, thank you requirements, right? So <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so the next one we got here: Glide Breaker program enters new phase from DARPA. Not too much information overall in this one, but uh, this is for countering emerging hypersonic threats. The phase one was to develop a divertent attitude control system to enable the kill vehicle to intercept a hypersonic weapon. And then phase two is quantifying aerodynamic jet interaction that results from that divert and attitude control system. So I guess there's plumes and hypersonic airflows around the interceptor kill vehicle, and you're going to have to like, you know, figure that out. And this is all to, you know, help, I guess, create proposals for what will go into wind tunnels and flight testing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get too much out of it. Interesting that it's there. I'm, sure people are working pretty hard on it so might be a high level yeah, program soon it does sound like a bear of a problem i yeah. mean i remember <laughs> i mean just watching nba you know over the last decade and a half just even try to get a interceptor on a very predictable icbm right i mean you you know where the icbm's gonna go it's gonna go arc up and it's gonna arc back down um and even getting a kill vehicle 
um, where, you know, you knew it was going to go to Quadge and you could track that and you like it, it was giving the missile target vectors and all this stuff and it could still barely get on there. I really like, uh, I think, I think this is pretty far out unless like there's just some, you know, game changing technology to, for, for tracking this thing. But um, it sounds, it sounds like a bearable one, especially given that these glide vehicles, you know, I mean, the way that they can drop down and their ability to maneuver and stuff like that is just insane. So this, this kill vehicle has to be like super fast. I mean, it's going to have to be just crazy fast because it's probably going to have to intercept the hypersonic as it's entering the atmosphere. So yeah, it's a, it's going to be an interesting one. Interesting problem. Yeah. Well, we'll see about that one. Next we got is as Silicon Valley tries to enlist, the Pentagon strangles to innovate. And this is uh, Steve Blank at War on the Rocks. Uh, so he's basically talking about, you know, that DIU has been pretty great and uh, Congress actually cut their budget by 20%. <laughs> so he's kind of like, you know, we need to kind of be doubling down on these things um, in this zero game world of the defense budgets. Um, so he's, I guess he's trying to carve out a niche for... Um, for that kind of innovation and, and space to grow. So what, what's your, what did you take out of it? No, I mean, I, I mean, I completely agree with, with um, you know, all of his points. I think, I think the key one that always kind of strikes me is that, you know, all of the technologies that we, we say we care about. So if you go to USD, R&E's, you know, uh, updated modern, uh, modernization priorities list, I think there's 14 things in there now. There used to be like nine, but but if you go there and you just look, you just go down that list of things, right? Like, you know, unmanned and AI and autonomy, biotech, cyber, quantum, high performance computing, you know, commercial access to space. I mean, all these different priorities, it's the commercial sector that's leading. And so it's this, it is crazy. And I, I share Mike Brown's frustration that uh, we still, we are getting more involved. I think you have to give the department some credit that we are starting to get more involved but we still are not fully committed. I think we'll talk about the DevSecDefs, you know, opinion about the acquisition system. But, but yeah, no, I definitely definitely share his frustration. The idea of I, the one thing where I maybe deviate a little bit is this idea of of kind of you know picking winners. Um, I think you, I think we have to pick more winners, but I think we also have to be careful about picking one winner because um, we, we really like we've talked about you really do want that redundancy and i think given the commercial sector is already pursuing a lot of these things for uh, commercial solutions i think we have options too so we don't need to pick one winner and you know one national champion as as uh, as uh, steve, steve blank said here but you know maybe we can pick a, a few and, and start to neck that down and say we want you three guys to really focus you know on DoD problems in ai we're going to throw a lot of money at you we're going to buy your stuff you know, and, and you're going to have to be kind of clear about the, the rules. And so I agree with him, like, let's stop giving out door prizes. But, um, you know, so that just 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 to level set this, he, he seems to be kind of playing a little bit on uh, on uh, China's, uh, you know, military civil fusion approach, which researching that recently, it is really interesting how they do it. Uh, and, the, and the way that a state owned enterprise is actually employed where like you might have one state-owned enterprise in a technology sort of district, and there's and basically an ecosystem forms around it, where you have a lot of smalls and little and mediums and, and commercial commercial companies that are kind of feeding that, or at least trying to get you know as much money as they can from the state-owned enterprise. But basically, they're kind of the suppliers, and the state-owned enterprise is doing more of the integration. I really do like that model. 
I just think Beijing has had a lot of problems with that model because state-owned enterprises get really inefficient. Um, sometimes they, you know, they take on too much, and they just don't have like that natural balancing uh, approach that comes from comes from the commercial sector. So I think you need to be a little bit careful about not making them just another big defense prime, making these national champions another big defense prime where they become bloated and they become inefficient. So you know, keeping that. You know, keeping that dynamic aspect and sort of having that competition, uh, maybe against a few national champions, is more appealing to me. But anyway, yeah, I think I thought it was a good article. Yeah, I think you know one of the things is always keep the contingencies. Like you don't have to preordain anything, right? Like there, there should always if you're getting fat and lazy, then there should be other you know ones in the pike that have been kind of in the pipeline, right? To to supp- mm, supplant yeah. you. So competition is an ongoing and you know, process. So it, right. We always think of it in acquisition, like, all right, let's, let's do the EMD contract, right. Engineering and manufacturing design contract. (laughs) That's the competition. And then it's over after that. So let's make sure we get everything right there. Right. It's like, well, how do we think about competition as just this ongoing, you know, always open process. I I don't actually mind, you know, when, if something is like over-programmed in the future, it's like, Oh, our, we have too many plans for the future. Well, you know, maybe that makes sense because, you know, some things won't work out and other things will. But if you plan for everything to be at an exact level, like what are the chances that it'll all turn out that way? Well, you know, what's funny in DoD is that if you talk to somebody who's like a real operational planner, they will always tell you. And this is true with like national securities or national strategies is, you know, there's almost never just one strategy. There's usually multiple strategies, right? Like, right. you know, there were multiple strategies with the USSR. We could have contained it, you know, we could have, you know, you know, actively tried to, you know, you know, you know, over overthrow it. Like, you know, like we had different options, but there's always a hedge. And this is where I really like Admiral Selby. He's like, he's kind of tried to make that point, I think, in the, in the Navy leadership is, yeah, we got our main strategy. We've agreed on this. We're still going to do big carriers and big subs, but let's have a hedge. Like, why not have a hedge strategy? And so, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, yeah, let's let's hear about it from the DepSec def. Uh, after hearing Silicon Valley's complaints, Hicks says no magical fix to acquisition in breaking defense. <laughs> yeah, this was kind of like an interesting remark, uh, but apparently there were about 15 space and software startups that kind of, you know, were at SpaceWorks's innovation hub and DepSec def. Kathleen Hicks was out there. She also went to go talk with uh, the Gordian Knot people in um Steve Blank, interestingly enough, right? And he, he blogged about that. But she said that, you know, basically, I'm just going to read the quote here, um, that my view isn't like I'm going to magically unlock a secret, a special secret approach that hasn't been touched before. I think that it's more about how you start to shift the incentives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to some degree, I, I, I feel her, right? Like when you start looking back and you're just like, man, we've been doing this forever. And we had people like David Packard and Ronald Fox and Jack Gansler. Like all these people were like thinking about these things and actually saying the same things. What's going on? Right? There doesn't seem to be a magical fix. Um, what, what What's your take on that? Well, I mean, of course, there's there is no magical fix in the in a in a big bureaucracy, but. Um, I think sometimes we we kind of think we pretend like we don't actually have the tools that we have. It's almost like yeah. we're going out to build a house and we actually have like 
we actually have quite a big toolbox, but we, we decide that we can only build the house with a screwdriver. And so it's like, you know, it takes us a long time and we, everyone's frustrated. So, you know, I think one of the things is, well, let's use the things that, that we have at our disposal that Congress has already approved that we're underutilizing. And, you know, I think, uh, I think we're doing better at it. We've made some progress, but I think there is a, there's also, there is a magical fix, which at least in the building, there's a magical fix, which is to pursue things that are more relevant to the future force and that do some of the things that we've talked about and many other smart, really smart people have talked about, which is don't just buy more legacy programs, go, you know, go buy more commercial stuff, go buy, you know, smaller, agile, you know, stuff, uh, stuff that you can have in, in quantity, on mass, different operational concepts. I mean, all this stuff has been written about, right? And what do we do? I mean, you look at the budgets, you're pretty much going after the same, same darn stuff every time, buy more F-35, more B-20, you know, the same, these big platforms that are not going to operate all that great in some of the theaters that we need to, and some of the mission sets we have. So that's, I think, the pushback, I'd say, is, you know, the SecDef has, actually has a lot of power, too, that they don't really use with the services. Um, there's, a, there's a little bit of, like, a Title 10, like, services get to choose what they invest in, and then OSD reviews it, but then they don't really make that much changes. They don't play hardball with the service secretaries. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a lot more tools in the toolbox that she could could leverage, and I think she's doing a lot, I mean, to give her credit, she's doing a lot with the innovation steering groups and trying to do things with Cibber and trying to get after some of these problems. But I think at the end of the day, you know, some of the the leaders are not, uh, not pushing the services, I think, in some of the directions that maybe they need to be pushed. And so it, it might require a little bit more assertiveness uh, at the OSC level to say, yeah, I want to see the next plan that comes up. I want to see, you know, I want to see unmanned teaming. I want to see, you know, autonomous vehicles. I want to see XXX and I want to see, you know, commercial technologies being bought at scale. I want to see services, different services being explored. Like, you know, be really directive at the service about what you want to see and say, I know this stuff is out there. I've been talking to these people. Mike Brown's telling me this. So I want to see this in the next budget. And if I don't, I'm going to change the budget around and, and make you buy them. And then she's also going to have to go to the Hill or the collective DOD leadership is going to have to go to the Hill and, and really push for this stuff too. And I think that's the other part of it is um, Congress is not on board necessarily with some of this. So at least though, get the, in, the internal department stuff um, nailed down and then, you know, collectively uh, work the Hill on some of these things that uh, are, are different and they're new concepts and the, the Congress is going to be, you know, it's going to be, going to be wary about it, but it's, it's some, something we have to do. We just can't keep doing the same thing. So. Yeah, I feel it's that almost feels like the the great man theory of uh, defense acquisition, where it's just like if the leader is just has enough vision and is willing to ram these programs through, that's all that's needed. Because ultimately, right, like the SecDef is and the Joint Chiefs of Staff or the Chairman are kind of like the focal points where like all acquisition authority meets, right? <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, I guess you're right that, um, but she's been saying, right? Like the FY23 budget was supposed to be the watershed budget. Was it? Not to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, part of it, I know the Navy had some, had some issues with autonomy with the autonomous ships and stuff they wanted to use. And they got a lot of pushback, but I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't have accepted the air force budget with, with what it has. I mean, there's some, I'm sure there's some stuff in the classified line we don't know about, but 
I mean, seems to be very, very weak on autonomy. A uh, lot of talk, a lot of uh, small dollars, but nothing big uh, on the army side. You know, you do have some good, good efforts going on, but still seems, you know, still seems like we're kind of like doing this, a lot of the same old things. And, you know, um, you know, some, some things are doing right, right. We're going after long range fires and things like that. But, but there's a, I, I think you wouldn't necessarily don't, you don't need OSC to tell you exactly what to buy, but I think setting the vision to say, these are the types of things I want to see, uh, I think would, I think would be helpful. And I, I you know, we're, we're going to come out with a paper about this, but basically saying, you know, be a little bit more directive about the types of things you want to see so that we can be more prepared with not, not basically be Russia, right? We don't want to be Russia in the China fight where we come in with our legacy stuff and we start to get, you know, start to get the crap beat out of us. And we're like, oh, I wish we had more drones. I wish we had more <laughs> these asymmetric, asymmetric capabilities that, you know, that the Ukrainians are using. So. Yeah, I guess, you know, some of the underlying presumption is like, well, the services or the, the people executing the programs have like this built-in plan continuation bias. And like it needs to come from above that they need to like pivot to these new things. But it feels like, well, that doesn't really make sense. Like we can't expect, you know, DevSec, Def Hicks to to know which particular things actually should be getting more or less funding. What on the margin actually makes sense. Um, provide like the general vision and direction. Right. But like I feel like unless you get, unless you get those decisions emanating from the, the acquisition workforce itself, and, you know, maybe I'll just, like, flip your... You had a really good part there where you said, like, we're trying to build a house, and it's like we're trying to build it with only one of the tools in the toolbox, and we're only using a screwdriver. My analogy would almost be, like, I don't know, like, 30 or 50 architects all partially participated on building <laughs> a house. And now here I am trying to build the damn house with my screwdriver, and I say, oh, wait this spec doesn't work. I need to do it like that. Well, now I got to go around and get 50 approvals, right? And I'll just be like, damn it, I'm just going to build it like they said. <laughs> so in some ways, that's kind of like my my view or maybe turning around your analogy or your... <laughs> yeah, I think there's a... I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a line. You can't, you can't tell exactly what to buy, but I think if you look through history, I mean, a lot of the offsets... Uh, you know, offset programs were, were essentially kind of OSD driven and they and they did force the services to think differently because there is, I think, a very strong built in bias. Uh, you look at the people who make the decisions in most of the cases. Uh, the military leaders are people who, you know, yes, they are visionaries in some cases. They're, you know, extremely talented people, but they, they grew up with a certain platform and it is sometimes hard for them to envision or it feels risky them to envision you know divesting something that is proven to them and so sometimes to make that leap into you know into this next phase right like uh, i love that the one economist that you blogged about this morning he made the he made the point in, in an article he had written about like you know it's like the the, the archer um horseman you know who you know trained his entire life and was like a warrior and a you know noble or whatever and like that's how he fought warfare forever is like shooting arrows from his horse. And that was like, you know, dominant warfare. And then somebody with a gun who had barely two weeks of training shot him off his horse. And that like changed the, changed the world forever. And I feel like we're at a slight tipping point where like war is going to be very, very different, different enough in the future that we, we need somebody to push us over that tipping point. 
And it, it just might not happen without really strong downward leadership to say, I want to see these things. You guys figure out exactly how it's going to play out, how many of this you buy or whatever. But I want to see this because we're just, you know, we can see enough. We can see the operations that have to be employed. We can see the challenges, the threats. And now, and, you know, we have a sense of the technologies that are available. Let's, let's take advantage of them. So I don't know. That's a, that's a little bit of the balancing act. I think that that needs to. Yeah. I think, you know, my version of the balancing act is like, you need to have like emotional adapt to adaptation, like built into the culture of the system, right? Like why, why would, why do people keep saying everyone's so parochial in the services and like they're protecting their like legacy systems because that's what they grew up with and all that kind of stuff. It's like, you know, how do we get, um, kind of like that, the, the desire to lean into the future, right? Which I think most of the, most of these people have anyway, right? Like, I think it's probably pretty common. Maybe they just don't know how to exercise it or, or feel it, or they just haven't, you know, experienced it enough times in their life. Um, but then the other part of that is how do you, you know, temper that optimism with, you know, empirical reality being the test of that, right? So you get the, the cycle of, um, you know, destruction and creation and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where all these experimentation and exercises come into play is is actually going out there and using it and, and developing the con-ops around some of these technologies. So, yeah, some of the, you know, underwater surface vessels and, you know, unmanned, unmanned uh, surface vessels and, you know, switchblades and, you know, law, you know, the, the small amphibious ships and all these, you know, so all these different things, it's, it's like, it really is a new concept of employment. Um, especially if you start to say, well, what if we didn't have a carrier? Let's take the carrier out of the picture. How would we operate? You know, uh, what if we didn't have any islands to operate from? How would we actually complete our missions? If you start to, you start to kind of pull some of these pieces together and I think you can at least create the challenges that can be experimented around and say, did that work or did it not? And I think you're going to find a lot of cases it doesn't work. Like, oh, we really wanted this commercial technology to solve this problem, but I found out it's really easy to deny all that all they have to do is, you know, aim their radar in our direction. This thing doesn't work right. So, you know, I mean, I think you do have to actually, you're right. You have to get that data and make sure that it, that it works. But we also, you know, we need to go full on, you know, with those experiments uh, and try, try to try these things. And if they do work, actually take it to the next level and not just admire, admire it. Yeah, I guess, you know, what uh, DepSec Def Hicks could have done is just like massively fund things like Project Convergence and, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, Integrated Battle Problem 21 and those types of things and just be like, we're just going to fund the hell out of you guys. And, you know, this is going to be something that like all, you know, service men and women will like participate in and really get that experience. And, you know, a lot more of development might be kind of built into those tests, right? You can like actually fund contractors to come out and show what they can do and put them into these various tests. And, you know, that could almost serve as part of this bridge of this Valley of death into, into larger systems. So I don't know. I mean, that would have been an interesting way to go about it. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it goes, I think the end of that, like you're, like you're talking about, like, yeah, say we funded, a lot more exercise, which, which, you know, there have been a lot of good exercises going on. Project Convergence has done a lot of great stuff. The Navy's done a lot of great stuff. The Air Force has done some interesting exercises. So they've been doing some exercises, experimentation campaigns. I think it's now is, like you said, at the end of that, actually saying, if it did work, if this is something that seems promising, 
let's go buy some of it. Let's go, you know, let's not worry about this like huge program of record with all the life cycle costs. That, like, let's actually go buy some of this and let's take it to the next level and let's have phases that we take it through. Uh, you know, and maybe there are a couple phases before you say, okay, this is a fully integrated, this is now in our operational plans, we're deploying with this. But at least you get, you need to get out of just the prototype. Yeah, we just played around with it. We did these fun exercises. Now we have all these reports, but we're not really taking that next step. So there's like, I feel like, the, you know, Valley of Death, we just need that stage between full-on program of record and prototype. And it feels like that's, that is the really hard thing for the services is to make that commitment because it is real dollars. It does require, you know, some of the, the rigor that's in program to programs today and all that stuff. So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of overhead there, but that seems to be what's missing to me. Oh, you know, as Chuck Spinney with his plans, reality mismatch, like those, those future plans always are destined to change anyway. So why not build some assumption that things may change into the whole system? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. That that's demonstrated by how many times we update our current legacy systems. Like our legacy systems are never not in modernization, right? Like if we had gotten it right, we wouldn't have to modernize them continuously. <laughs> that's what I, that's, that's kind of how I always think about it. Like, yeah, you know, if the F-35 was so good, why do we need block four? Why do we need, you know, the next block that's going to come after it? You know, it's like, we'll be continually upgrading that aircraft for, for its lifespan. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was a, an article, I'm sure we'll hit it next, next time where they were comparing like the F-15 total cost where like a lot of those systems that were integrated into the F-35 contract cost were kind of like not touted in, in its contract. But then like, it's all, I never know where to come to costs. Every system has like a million cost numbers because he was leaving out the fact that the F-35 needs to get fully upgraded back to the block four. And then, you know, all the other block fours and whatever is next block five. So yeah, and I, I heard that's ten to fifteen million, I guess, a pop to to upgrade that. Oh yeah, I mean, and that's that's probably on the the low end, and, and that's probably some of the later jets for the for the upgrade. If you tried to do it with some of the earlier ones, yeah, there's a lot there's a lot to upgrade there. Well, one of the the cool things here is uh, the next one that we got: electric powered laser test. The Navy shoots down a cruise missile analog. Uh, so interested to see what that cruise missile analog was been told that business jets are sometimes used to represent cruise missiles but this is the layered laser defense from lockheed martin um and it's been used for counter unmanned drones and potentially can also be used for fast attack boats and i guess this is one of two major uh laser (laughs) i guess directed energy systems that they're fielding there uh at lockheed the other one is helios as we've talked about before which they are putting on board um, ships. So yeah, it's, been, it's being put on a destroyer in sometime in 2022. So a lot of people seem to be skeptical about laser and the future of lasers, um, but maybe there is some real progress being made. I mean, it's kind of exciting if it's as powerful as they you know, are claiming it to be. Yeah, I still want somebody to write the, the history um, and I'm sure it's being done somewhere, but I still want, I want to read, I mean, put it that way. I want to read the history of directed energy weapons because it really feels like something happened in the last couple of years. I, I don't know what it was, but I mean, even when I was still in, in, in the air force and Dr. Ripper wasn't like that keen on it. And, and, and other people were sort of like, yeah, it still has a ways to go. It's not near term. And, and so, and then all of a sudden now it's like, it's like reality and it's actually being used for, you know, 
for some pretty big problems. Um, I mean, in that same article, uh, Admiral Selby actually said, you know, that system has the potential to redefine the future of naval combat operations. That's a pretty big statement. Um, they present transformational capabilities to the fleet, address diverse threats, provide precision engagements with a deep magazine to complement existing defensive systems. <laughs> I like so, how they yeah, call it a magazine. <laughs> like, I know, I know. <laughs> just like how much like charge bolts you got. of lightning in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's yeah. one of those things that like, you know, in the future, if lasers are the thing, like, they'll be like, what's a magazine? Like, why do we even call it a magazine? They'll be like, oh, there used to be these things where they would actually shoot projectiles. And <laughs> like the projectile would be in this thing called a magazine. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be it'll sort of be like it'll be looking like back, like I was looking back at the Civil War and cannonballs, like they the key is cannonballs and they shot them <laughs> across the yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, next one we got is Collins Airspace creates a group to make hypersonic weapons and next gen aircraft, and this is the Advanced Structures Group, uh, which is the combination of two former groups, and it looks like you know of course Collins is one of four major sub. Um, organizations or subsidiaries of Raytheon Technologies. And it looks like they, they're talking about these technologies such as carbon-carbon, a material that's been used by the company to make brakes, but is also apparently very good for aircraft structures to withstand high-speed flight. So here's another instance from a kind of dual-use company where they're kind of taking commercial technology and applying it to defense needs. Uh, so, yeah, I'd just add this in here. I know more, more hype on the hypersonics, more money for hypersonics, and uh, some in industry consolidating around those concepts. Yeah, and carbon-carbon, I mean, some of those things actually are things that have been used for re-entry vehicles um, and things like that. So they're not, uh, some of those are not entirely, like, new things. But it does sound does sound like they, they really are sort of, uh, you know, trying to reimagine different uh lighter lighter better materials what one thing i had i did have to laugh about in this article was that the president said this isn't about company synergies or anything like that this is really about taking the industrial capability that exists in one part of the organization some of the enabling technologies that exist in another part and putting them together to help change and grow our air structure business and i was like isn't that synergy that sounds a lot like synergy yeah. <laughs> I mean, synergy so. is also one of those buzzwords. <laughs> so he's just like, it's not about that buzzword, but let me describe to you what that buzzword is. <laughs> and it sounds a lot like what you would imagine. <laughs> yeah, pretty, and, and, pretty good pickup anyway, there. <laughs> uh, yeah, the next one we got is Navy Shipbuilder Oversight Offices are Underutilized Watchdog Agency Report, and that's the Navy Supervisors of Shipbuilding Conversion and Repair, or Soup Ship. And apparently what's been going on here is that they're just kind of deprioritized in the organization for a lot of these decisions, it seems like. Uh, Subship, Subships has limited input before contracts are awarded, and their expertise is not leveraged in the decision-making process. And the Navy's process for accepting ships from builders fails to include Subships' uh, expert input on ship quality and readiness. And this is part of the contributing factor, they say, to the, the Navy regularly accepting delivery of incomplete ships with significant uncorrected deficiencies. And so I feel with, for them at some, for some respects, but then also like, you know, how many decision makers should really be in on it? Um, 
but soup ships probably uh, should play play a good role. So here's an oversight office saying other oversight offices need to be increased. But soup ships does more than oversight, so I'm not really clear on exactly what the delineation of duties is. Yeah, it kind of sounds like they're like just an, an expert organization right. that uh, supposed to be consulted. I mean, they did make the point that the key thing I got out of there was they kind of made the point that even if subships had all this control and stuff, they probably would not have been able to correct, you know, they probably wouldn't be able to pre- prevent, uh, prevent those deficiencies. But I mean, you know, I think it is sort of incredible. It's, it's, it's just the way of the business, unfortunately, that you, you accept things with a certain number of deficiencies. It's almost like, it's not that uncommon from like, you know, a cereal manufacturer where like a food inspector will inspect it and it's allowed to have like so many bugs in the box of cereal, right? And they'll and they'll still pass it. So it's like at some point there are some deficiencies. They can they can be fixed later on, uh, you know, in the field as part of routine maintenance and things like that. But then you know we get into things like KC forty six and you know definitely some issues with bigger issues here with some of the ships, the propulsion systems and the elevators and things, where like you should not have to accept it. Like you should be able to say no, we're, we're not going to accept that. But it's actually really hard for the government to do that. Because if they do, then you wind up paying for storage costs and other delays that are incurred because they're not able to move on to the next thing or they're sitting there, you know, uh, burning more money than they expected to. So there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why, like, saying no also is not very, like, conducive. Um, and in most cases, it's better for the government just to say, we'll accept that, but you guys should at least share in the fixes or find some sort of equitable equitable solution for, for it, so... Well, I guess but, the, yeah. the the main thing here they're saying well one of them is limited input before contracts are awarded too right but then the the question is like I'm I'm sure you know maintainability and you know performance are all things that you know NAVC is actually thinking about every day right I think they intentionally made these contracts to be um, a certain way right. Well, and I and you can imagine. I mean, I, I haven't seen them, so maybe I'm wrong. But I have to imagine that these contracts are exhaustive for yeah. for a ship. I mean, so is adding another paragraph or two is that uh, going to fix it? Would right. that have shot? Yeah, I mean, could maybe there are like inspections that could have happened at different points to stop things before they got too far. I, I don't know, but yeah, definitely. I mean, for one thing, that that definitely probably should be corrected is that if they want this sort of organization to be an oversight uh, body, having it within the NAFC community definitely makes that hard to do because you're under the same leadership. So um, if they want this to be a more powerful organization, they probably do need to give it some autonomy um, and, and not uh, not make it as under that same commander. So, yeah. Well, I would, you know, one of the things I would do, I guess, if their problem is acquisition, because they, they just kind of get the, the tail end of it, right? Um, but like, instead of, they could like build out the Navy shipyards from just those four maintenance ones to also do like shipbuilding potentially. And now you have a supervisor of shipbuilding that, that has that kind of competence in-house and doesn't have to be huge. But if everyone's saying, you know, we need a bigger Navy, you know, potentially part of that is the Navy might need to have some of that, that knowledge that it used to have at places like, uh, like in Brooklyn shipyard and stuff like that. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that too. If this organization had anything to do with like the psyop, sort of psyop planning to say, yeah. you know, here's where the deficiencies are. Here's where we need improvements. Like, 
who makes who makes those decisions. It seems seems like a good organization to do it given their expertise. But yeah, yeah. So let's move on to uh, HII. Of course, the former Huntington Ingalls unveils Odyssey, its answer to Navy call for open architecture autonomy. <laughs> so here they're making their moves, right? They they rebranded themselves. Now they're 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 pushing uh, Odyssey, this autonomy software suite, which can go on any ship or vehicle and is consistent with requirements for the U.S. Navy for autonomous platforms. So they're talking about being installing it on land, maritime, aerial platforms, and a variety of plug-and-play modules that HII has developed, such as health monitoring and perception or capabilities developed by third parties. So, of course, they want to say that, no, right? No one wants to say that we're trying to monopolize this space, but, oh, hey, here's, here's our architecture. Use this architecture, right? <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, here's here's a little bit of your answer, right, from last week about, you know, are they really doing multi-domain? Are they really pushing away from, you know, just Navy stuff? Looks like that. This is p- part of that bid, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you do need companies to step out and actually sort of show. I'm sure that if you pick this apart, there's probably proprietary pieces, like you said, that, you know, probably make it not not as easy as maybe you want it to be, and you know, maybe they, they have some sort of, uh, you know, some hooks for, you know, vendor wants to use it, they comply with the standards, but then there's also some level of integration that's, that they have to be involved in or something. So I think you have to look at the details to understand, you know, is this a viable thing that the Navy can glom onto, but you have to give them props for sort of getting out, uh, uh, you know, trying to put something out there that the Navy, you know, clearly said they need as a priority. So yeah, I hope it works. Uh, I hope it works well, because I mean, uh, but the, once we get the USVs and all the other things, uh, you know, once we get that uh, production line going and get the you know Congress to allow that to uh, go to scale, uh, you're gonna you're gonna need this because there's just like the flexibility, right? I mean, we saw it with all those uh, uh, the the Overlord ships, right? The flexibility on them to plug and play different things is just enormous. So you're gonna need something like this to make it all work together. The next one we got is pretty interesting. Ukraine opens Russian drone, finds Canon DSLR inside. And so basically uh, there's uh, the Russian Orlon 10, which is basically an ISR uh, vehicle. And they're saying it costs uh, actually over a couple hundred thousand dollars here for the whole drone. But it's using a DSLR camera from Canon, which uh, the retail price is 750 bucks but you can get it for about 300 bucks on the used market. And so they kind of have a bunch of sh- pictures of Ukrainian soldiers kind of pulling this this drone apart and saying, you know, how surprisingly low-tech this thing really is. Um, but yeah, I, I just thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of brilliant. I mean, hey, if that's what, if that's what works, uh, <laughs> you know, why, why develop your own optics? Like, I mean, to literally, if they didn't decide to use that, they would have had to develop their own optics um, and, and integrate, you know, have all of the kind of software backplane stuff that you need to sort of process that image and all that stuff that you, you know, is kind of embedded in that DLSR. So kind of genius to say, you know what, we're just going to skip that step. <laughs> the rebel, the rebel has everything we need and, and um, they, for that, for that image. And they mount it yeah. with Velcro. Yeah. Well, I mean, at, to be fair, I mean, it did look like it was actually in an assembly. I think the Velcro was on the back yeah. to make sure it was strapped down. But I mean, it wasn't an assembly. It did have a military interface that had been 
you know, so clearly there was like some electronic modifications and stuff that had been made there. So it didn't look that crazy to me. This was also not a very high end drone. I know they, I, I heard like it was like 80 to a hundred thousand or something, but um, you know, I think they may have had some other sensors that maybe kind of drove up that cost, but, but, um, but it was, a, it was a fairly low tech drone. It wasn't, a, it's not a very big drone. So, you know, I'm sure the Russians have some, some better stuff, but yeah, uh, I thought this was kind of smart. Yeah. 87 <laughs> to 120 per unit is what they're, they're yeah, putting it okay, at. But you've seen, there's like all, all sorts of like these little drones that it looks like Russia has been using that have been downed. Um, yeah, a lot of proliferation will be needed for those things because, uh, yeah, they they're not going to be the most survivable. But you're going to want them everywhere, probably. Yeah, it was weird that they um, like I was kind of following that early in the war. Uh, they actually were not using them until like just recently that they start using them at scale, and it was really everyone was really perplexed by it because, uh, yeah, they kind of thought they knew the Russians had drones. I mean, they they, they saw the you know, the Turks, they didn't work with the Turks on that and stuff. So they expected them to be used a lot more in, earlier in the war. And they just like, they weren't. It's kind of still, still kind of a mystery about that. But yeah, I guess they started to here recently. So, I mean, that's pretty much all we got time for. Was there any of the last ones that you wanted to, to do before we wrap up? Um, only that I think the, uh, the MQ-9B Sea Guardian is, uh, yeah, I really a uh, big fan, big fan of that. Um, I think it's it's great to see, you know, uh, aircraft that have proven themselves right over over years kind of be repurposed, and um, it sounds like this is really going to be a, an incredible capability. I mean, with like the, the electrical optical infrared sensor, you know, synthetic aperture, uh, radar, um, you know, they they they've used this where it's like, or they've assembled this in such a way that it's like a fully self-contained sort of system. Uh, it can drop Sony buoys and. It's also certified to operate in um, what they call non-segregated airspace. So basically it could fly like a commercial jet. So it allows it easier to get, you know, transit in and out. Sometimes if you have a military, a military aircraft actually going through certain countries is kind of a problem or going over certain airspace is a problem, but this actually is certified to do that, which is pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Has huge range. It can land in all kinds of different airfields. So Man, in the Pacific Theater, this kind of uh, this kind of uh, mission, uh, just uh, this kind of application of, of MQ-9 re re, uh, re uh, uh, modification of it, uh, just seems pretty genius. So anyway, I thought that was pretty cool, worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely. The only UAS that is fully demonstrated to have uh, anti-submarine prosecution fully contained within itself. Uh, so that's the sauna buoys that you were talking about. And it also tracked the Navy Los Angeles class submarine uh, through integrated battle problem 21. So, uh, yeah, for several yeah. days tracking, a, tracking, a, a, you know, one of our top submarines for several days. That's pretty, uh, yeah, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so that's all we got time for. Thanks, Matt. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.